kisses on my pillow that won't dry on the road beyond my ears. I've no sorrow, but today I don't walk alone. Howdy, friends. Welcome to the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group's Thursday Night Alcoholics and God Speaker Step Series. Let's have our joke now. Joey! Hey, guy. How are we doing? Um, hello, everyone. My name is Joey, and I'm your alcoholic joke teller for this evening. This is, comes from the, the grapevine. Um, AA-approved literature. All right, so this one's a doozy. <laughs> a Cold Wife, it's titled. I just got off the phone with a friend who lives in North Dakota. She said that since early this morning, the snow has been nearly waist high, and it's still falling. The temperature is 32 below zero, and the north wind is increasing to gale force, near gale force. Her husband has done nothing but look through the kitchen window and just stare. She said, if it gets much worse, we might have to let the drunken bum in. <laughs> Thanks, Joey. I'm a recovered alcoholic. My name is Trey. Thanks for joining us tonight. In a minute, we're going to start our two-minute meditation. So please take a moment to get situated. Please turn off all devices that make noise that might and will distract others. Take this time to get connected to God. Let the craziness of the day drift away and ask God to help you stay focused on the step study tonight. Is everybody ready? Yes. Okie doke. Let's start the meditation.
welcome back everybody. Please join me in the fog light prayer. God, let your love shine through me like a fog light so those who are lost, sick, and dying can find your love through me. There is a solution from the big book, page 17. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have discovered a way, or we have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. I've asked Dustin to read Appendix 2, Spiritual Experience. We read this because the main purpose of the 12 steps is to have one, so it's kind of important to know what one is. Okay, spiritual experience. The terms spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which upon careful reading shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from the alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless, nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate an overwhelming God consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety, because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his recognition to life, that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few expectations, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource which they personally presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish to say that an alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not choose his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is 
which is proof against all arguments and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is, is contempt prior to investigation. Herbert Spencer. Thank you, Dustin. Please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. This is a tech-free meeting, so set your phones to airplane slash meeting mode or just turn them off. Uh, I have the pleasure of introducing uh, Peter. He is back again. I am uh, I'm very pleased to be able to do this again, as always. It's so refreshing to hear from you. Your passion and inspiration is very encouraging, especially whenever many of us do get weary. Thank you so much. Let's give it. Yeah. My name is Peter, recovered alcoholic. Uh, grateful to be alive and sober and part of a sacred place called Alcoholics Anonymous. It's really good to be back here. Uh, thank everyone for their patience, especially the group members while I was uh, out of here for two weeks um, to get back here and share with you. Um, June 23rd, 1988 is uh, when God sobered me up. Uh, my sobriety came in the back of a hallway in an abandoned building. I was talking to a buddy of mine about the Lower East Side and the places we used to frequent, and they used to get thrown out of at the end of the night. Um, but I'm very grateful for sobriety and, and the life God has given me. And uh, I'll tell you, on the front end, uh, we're not up to step 12, but um, when our book talks about to survive the certain trials and low spots ahead, it's, it's, it's met with work and self-sacrifice. And uh, I always looked at that, and uh, having a servant's heart and being of service to others, uh, supporting others, uh, and sponsorship. And um, it's interesting, you know, you, I'm on a routine with a lot of the men I sponsor, and they call me at their times and days, I'm supposed to call most of them, do. some of them are still late, but, uh, and you take the call, and you, it's a conversation with the sponsee, inventory, whatever it might be, and um, the past couple of weeks, um, although I, I, I'm finding it difficult to get motivated and, and kind of get in a saddle and, and get some juice in his body moving, um, when they do call, it's like I'm taking this call. And uh, it's the same inventories or, you know, the same stuff, their trials and tribulations in life, but uh, um, it's been a breath of fresh air to, uh, to keep me putting one foot in front of the other. And uh, when we, uh, Mary and I, uh, on last Tuesday, I think it was, uh, it was a 5.30 meeting. I rarely go to 5.30 meetings. Um, it kind of reminds me, get it out of the way meeting, 5.30, and I'm home by 7, and I'm done. <laughs> but um, we ran to that meeting to get around folks like you. We knew it was that important just to sit with a cup of, with a cup of coffee, hear a speaker, and, and get around drunks. And it is my lifeblood, Alcoholics Anonymous. And so I'm grateful to be a member of good standing here um, and have a place to go to, uh, unlike other folks who don't have a home called Alcoholics Anonymous. So I'm very, very grateful. Um, I'm supposed to talk about step four, and um, I've been gone for a few weeks, so just to, just to kind of help me a little bit, um, in 1988, as I've shared with you in the past, um, I had no clue how to stay sober. 
I didn't even know who Bill and Bob was after seven treatment centers. Uh, the steps were foreign. The traditions could have been in Latin for all I was concerned. Um, I wanted, in the worst way, to be sober. I knew I needed to be sober. I wanted and needed this. But I was still bombarded with a, a lot of the, the old voices in the head. And I knew um, what I was. I just didn't know who I was. Uh, I know I'm an alcoholic. I, 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 I know what I've done. But I have no clue who I am. And, uh, you know, months into recovery, I'm going to meetings and shaking hands and the old times are saying, keep coming back and, and you're getting the, you know, the 30 and 60 and 90 day applause and I'm trying to pretend like I've been here for 20 years and I don't have a clue what I like, what I dislike. And the thing about writing inventory is in order for me to discover what my truth is, I need to be rid of all the lies. And so it's this flushing out of all the, the misbeliefs and misconceptions and perceptions about everything to find out who I am. And I will tell you, uh, when I first sobered up, the very first person I ran into was me. And it was not a welcome, welcoming uh, uh, moment. It was, oh my God, this is who I am. Because I get around uh, uh, folks who are sober a while, like a lot of us do, like a really long time, like one year. Or two years, and you're counting days and months, and someone with five years, they might as well make a monument outside the, the meeting hall with five years, and uh, they had jobs, and they had relationships, and um, they were showing up for work, and when they went to work, they actually worked. Um, they were making like five and seven meetings a week, they had a sponsor, they were in the game, in this life, and uh, they were clear about some things, uh, and I'm trying to get along with them, and I, I have no clue. I'd say yes to you and then no to you. I'd say yes to you. I'd agree to anything uh, because I don't really know. I don't know who I am. And I'm praying to this God, and I got months uh, behind me. I'm praying to this God. I'm a Catholic, so I'm praying to the carpenter. But I really don't have a relationship yet. There's too many narratives in my head. There's too much insecurity, all driven by fear, the, the, the catalyst of all my problems. I'm in conflict with a lot of things. But I knew when I walked into a meeting, I felt some sort of okayness while I was sitting here, although I was vibrating for the whole hour, but I felt safe here. There was power in the numbers of Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, it was a long road just to get there. Uh, you know, picking up a drink at 14 and destroying my life when I get here at 28. And uh, then I'm in here, and I don't have the medicine to pour on my alcoholism. My alcoholism doesn't come in a bottle of whiskey, so you remove the alcohol, and I got alcoholism. And it's all over the place. That's why if spiritual, I was in touch every single area of my life. Uh, it touches none of my life. I can't have a little spirituality here and a lot of me there. It doesn't work that way. It'll blow up eventually. I'll be all over page 52 with double-digit sobriety. And so I'm experiencing this at the beginning, and I, I just don't know what to do. And, uh, you know, after seven treatment centers, you would think I know what a sponsor is. I know I'm alcoholic, and that's about as far as it went. And at the beginning, alcohol was the main problem. I didn't know about alcoholism. I didn't know about the, the, I knew about the symptom, but I didn't know about the real problem. The root cause was all up in the head. I just figured I could, you know, work through it. Uh, we sometimes hear in AA, uh, and just for me, think ourselves into right action. I don't know what that means. I don't know how I can do that. If I'm thinking, I'm already in trouble. 
So think myself into right action. It's going to be, it looks like in my mind it's the right action. It's actually the wrong pl place to go. What I needed was a coach. I needed a manager. I'm not in a managerial quality. I'm sober 35 years. I'm still not managerial quality. I need someone to say, now you go here and sit there. I said, I love when the sponsors, you sit next to me. Okay, my seat is selected. Because we walk into a room and there's 300 seats open. and going, where should I sit? <laughs> and we sit in the front row, back row, middle row, back to the front again. And the meeting's over and I'm still trying to find a seat. So I needed folks to tell me what to do. Um, and it's really important if you're new tonight and, and you're rocking and rolling up in the head, we front really well, but only you know if you could pierce inside there, the noise in the head, that's just the way it goes at the beginning. But the quicker I get involved with this work, the quicker that noise will go away. Now the noise is gonna be with me till I take my last breath, but not with the volume it spoke to me when I first got here. I was so interested in getting approval from other people and less interested in getting right with God. And then the journey began, and I really got an idea of what I'm up against in Alcoholics Anonymous with the sponsor when he opened up the book and read Doctor's Opinion in the first 43 pages with me. I, I, now I really get what I'm up against. It's great we get the chips and we celebrate all of that stuff. It's important. Um, <clears throat> but I can't, the process of recovery is not linear, but transformational. And I, you know, I was walking around um, with these keychains they gave us in Minnesota, and I had all these little chips, and I had a whole collection of stuff I'm walking from meeting to meeting with. All rainbow chips, black chips, white, and you name it, I had them. And I'm still rocking and rolling. And I don't know what to do. I like this music, I don't like that music, then I like this music, then if you like that, I like that, this is me. I'm a chameleon in recovery. And uh, my sponsor walked me through this work, uh, step one, and I really understood what's going on, that my main problem forever is gonna be my own thinking. That's the predator, me. That's the problem, me and my thinking. And I think I can outthink my thinking and just doing that, I'm already headed down the wrong road. What I need is somebody to tell me what to do, show me how to go, how to be, what to say, what not to say. I needed that. And only because I was in a place of such great desperation was I made teachable. The great thing about the bottom I hit, albeit I'll never survive it if I ever got there again, God forbid, was it made me very teachable. Big Book says alcohol beat us into a state of reasonableness, which means I'm negotiable. You can talk to me. We can talk about this, and I'm going to listen. But prior to that, you know, if a sponsor said, if I had a sponsor treatment center number five, and he said, go left, I would walk away and say, well, he didn't really mean left, he meant right. <laughs> But when, now when they said left, I'm going left. And you know what? I wasn't very popular with some of the guys who came in with me. Oh, Mr. Spiritual, Mr. Big Book, does everything his sponsors. Oh, most of those guys are dead. I remember one time I was doing a, a fourth step. Uh, my first fourth step with my sponsor back in Brooklyn, bless his heart, his name is Tony. Everybody in Brooklyn's named Tony, but that's another. Uh, we were, I was with my family over some very difficult times the past two weeks, and at the dinner table, there was 50 Anthony's sitting at the table. Big Anthony, little Anthony, young Anthony, old Anthony. And uh, <clears throat> I went to a, a, a 1230 meeting in Brooklyn, and... Um, I got in a car with a few other guys and one guy and his wife and two of us and three of us in the back seat. You know, the AA cars, it's a little car and you put 20 in there. It goes from zero to 60 in two weeks, one of those things. And um, they were all going to the beach. 
Coney Island Beach. They had a place called Sober Beach or something like that. And a lot of AAs and other fellowships would go there. They're going to the beach. And they were going to meet girls and hang out and have some fun. And I said, can you guys drop me off? Uh, what do you mean? And I said, well, my sponsor told me to finish my fourth step by tonight. And they were really upset. And let me know how upset they were. And who's this sponsor guy? What is he, crazy? It's Sunday. It's beautiful out. We're all going to the beach. You can do it tomorrow. I really need to get home. And they dropped me off. And I went up. And I spent this one beautiful Sunday finishing up my fourth step because that's what the sponsor said to do. And I'm not saying that because I'm some good AA. It was just desperation. I said, I better finish it. I don't want to lose him as a sponsor. I don't want to get drunk. And I finished that work. And we did a fifth step a, a few days later. Um, two of those guys are dead and one of them I sponsor now because he had to go out and experiment a little longer so the, the beating I took made me disciplined made me willing to listen and I moved to step two where I saw it was the pointer out of this mess that I was in, the pointer out of insanity. I wasn't there yet, but it was at least a road ahead. There was a light up ahead that I'm going to get out of this place. The big book says, came to believe that a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity. The step 10 has been delivered. God could and would if he was sought. Am I seeking? No human power can relieve me of my alcoholism. I experimented with human power. It doesn't work. God can and has restored me to sanity. I can tell you that experientially. But at the beginning, it didn't feel that way. It's like having the flu and you take the antibiotic the first day. You still got the flu. You don't feel much better. In fact, the antibiotic makes you feel kind of queasy. I'm never getting out. And a week later, you're back at the gym and I had the flu. It's how we get recovered. I'll never get cured, but I remember when I was suffering, I don't suffer anymore. Life deals cards, and they're not always pleasant, but we chop wood and carry water and move through because I lean all the way into God, and somehow in this mess, God will move me through. A couple of scrapes and bruises along the way, that's just the way it goes, but I'm getting through. It's not the end. But when I was first getting sober, everything was a catastrophe. Everything, and I, I listened for gossip and jump right in. It was something to do. It was entertainment because the voices in my head were so horrific and uh, about turning my will and life over to care of God. The first time I, I did a third step with my spots, I was focused mainly on my will and life is I don't want to drink anymore. That's what it was. That's all I can wrap my arms around. I didn't know the depth of what step three is talking about, that my life is none of my business, that I'm willing to play by rules other than my own, not mine. That I need to stop feeding the soul and starving the ego. I don't know about this. But at least I was, I was on the course. I didn't even know I was on the course. I just knew I did a third step with my sponsor because that's what he did. He did it with me. And all the men in my group, in my, and it was just a few of them in my first home group, the free spirit group, who seemed to be traveling light did this work. It's interesting. Step four says we, um, we got rid of them promptly and without regret. We're talking about resentment. Promptly and without regret. How can I possibly let go of something promptly without regret if I think it's mine? If I was sitting in a restaurant, someone says, came over to me and says, I want your phone. I would say, you can use my phone, but it's my phone. I'm not letting you go promptly and without regret. It's my phone. I'll, you can use it. But if it wasn't my phone and I sat down in a restaurant, somebody's phone was there, I would tell the waiter, hey, someone left their phone and just give it to them because it's not mine. 
The problem was my thinking and my resentments and my fear. I really believe they're mine. And if you take them away from me, I cease to exist. It's part of my storyline. It's part of who I think I am. My resentments, my story, what I've been through, the people who've hurt me, the people I'm angry with, all my fears. This is my flag that I carry into every AA meeting, so I live in the second column and I never get out. They did this to me, or I did this to them. And that's my reason for being. It's my cause, and we'll hear it at a meeting. No matter what we're talking about, Joel raised his hand and talked about the terrible day he had, or talk about what it was like when he first came in and he's over 30 years. We're not talking about that anymore. Why are we talking about what's not happening? So I had to get cut loose of that, like the thinking, the thoughts that I have. I thought they were mine. It's my thinking, which gives them power, because I believe them to be true. It's not my thinking. My thinking has me, and I need a power to cut me loose from that. What a frightening proposition that I might be stuck with me in the raw to face life. I'd rather take my resentments and my fears and all my thinking. At least I got something. Bill talks about having being the hole in a donut. If you remove all of this, what happens to me? How many things am I attached to? It's, in the third step, it says, relieve me of the bondage of self. And self is the toxic thing. All the manifestations of self, all the fears, all the resentments, all the narratives, the self, the ego, the pride, the lust, the envy, the sloth, the greed, all of it's wrapped up in this, this thing called self, a lot of self, selfish, self-centered, self-seeking, self-absorbed, self, 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 it goes on and on and on. And it's poison. And the third step, relieve me of the bondage of self. If this was self here, this poisonous thing. That keeps getting me sick. There's a cord, like an umbilical. When a baby's born, they cut the cord. They had a free mama to some degree. And I got self over here. It's all up in the head, right over here, just hanging here, looking to destroy me. And I said, don't cut the cord. What's going to happen to me? I might just float away. And so I walk around with this thing for years. In the business of blaming other people, relieve me of the bondage of self. Cut it. And God's about to do that. He's got a big sledgehammer ready to break in half. I don't do that yet. What's going to happen to me? Until we get to the other side and we get some freedom, we realize how much bondage I was walking in. Oh, my God, I can't believe I thought like that. I can't believe I hung out with such knuckleheads. I can't believe I was such a knucklehead. All of my problems, all of my, my problems of today were, were because of yesterday's solutions. And after a while, you get beat up in recovery. Your body, you can bottom out. I did in recovery. I'm going to means I bottom out. I'm not even using anymore. I hit a bottom. I'm experiencing depression and anxiety in recovery. I think I shared with you guys, I develop an eating disorder to cope with life. My sponsor had to take me to another fellowship, go to the steps and seek outside help because I got this serious eating disorder going on. And I'm not telling anyone. It's a secret. It was the drink. In recovery, I'm binging and purging and getting sick from it. And it's a secret. It gave me comfort. It gave me control. It gave me an outlet. It can release the steam here because life still hurts and I'm going to meetings. And I'm walking through the steps and it still hurt. Life is problematic. That's the way it goes. We live in a world of impermanence. Nothing stays forever. And sometimes it just seems really, really unfair. I'm chopping wood, carrying water, staying in my lane, and boom, you walk into a drive-by. Well, where's the justice? Keep moving. And the little bit, the little bit of God that I do get, I can work with that. 
I don't have to have a whole bunch of God from the beginning, but if I get a little morsel, I can be better for that. I just work with that. And God was spoon-feeding me little by slowly. And we live like forward and understand it backwards. And I look back on, on, on those early days. There's a little, little, these little bright, like little God winks. I heard somebody, I love that expression, little God winks, low noise. Oh, yeah, I remember when that happened. And something told me to go to that meeting and I heard this great speaker. Or when I was up against the wall, something said, call your sponsor. And I did, and I moved through. The little God winks, and those, that's the little bit of God I had, was keeping me safe and sober. And I did a third step with my sponsor. And, um, you know, I would hear uh, some of the, and if this works for you, great. I don't know how it does, but I would hear step a year. Don't worry about the steps. Stay away from a fourth step. It'll get you drunk. My sponsor, if you don't do a fifth, you're going to drink one. So I heard a lot of uh, uh, middle-of-the-road stuff, and I wasn't sure what to do. And uh, I remember going to my home group, and I would see these fourth-step worksheets from all over the globe who had one way, another way, five columns, 15 columns, four columns. I said to my sponsor, what do we do? And they opened up the book. He says, this. This is what we do. How we recovered from a single hopeless state of mind and body is in here, nothing else. So okay, that made that simple. Again, I went to a sponsor and I got the truth. I had to dispel a lot of ideas in my head about this God too. I can study scripture, I can study every spiritual book, but the only thing that's going to make me have a relationship with God is experience and my will to have it. And it might be very similar to what the book said. It might be completely different, but it's my experience. I have something I can bite onto. I have a personal experience with a God, a creator, my own understanding, whatever that is, and a book is really clear, our own understanding. They don't care what religion I'm from or how I worship, just make sure I worship and have a God, and I'm not the God. She's not the God. The drugs and alcohol are not the God. No human power is a God. God is God. I know we sometimes call an AA God a higher power, like we gave him a nickname. We're afraid to say God. His name is God. G-O-D, very simple, three letters. Try to be politically correct with God. He's going, what are you doing? I gave you the whole program. Can you call me by my name, please? And so I got up off my knees with my sponsor, and we launched out in a course of vigorous action, which is step four. Now, I'll share something with you. Uh, the first time I sat down to do step four, um, I didn't pray. I just opened up a notepad, had a big book, and I started to write this master list of names. And um, now I was homeless in 1980, literally in, in living in an abandoned building, and it was filthy. I was even dirtier and you know, no moral compass, nothing. And um, I have this little place I'm living in, and I sit on the couch, and I'm about to write, and I says, maybe I should clean the place up a little bit. It's dusty. <laughs> and then I said, well, maybe I should make some coffee, because it'll be a long night. Eight days, drink coffee, make a pot of coffee. I look like a crackhead after have to have a pot of coffee. <laughs> Nine o'clock at night, I'm like, you know. I'll eat a little something, watch some TV, then I'll write. I fell asleep. I'll do it tomorrow. And then tomorrow, and tomorrow, that, and I'm delaying. My sponsor called me. It's funny how sponsors just know. How's that fourth step going? You start to sweat. <laughs> and he read me the riot act. I'll never forget this. You forgot you're an alcoholic, is what he said to me. 
And I said, every time I go to write, I get distracted. He says, well, what we're going to do is this. And he had me write something across the top of the page. And it was, thank you, God, for allowing me to be searching for you. some more all sent to me. He says, God's going to write your fourth step, not you. The pen's going to become a spiritual translator. You're not writing it. Stop thinking you're writing it. This is not an autobiography. You're not a writer about what a wonderful person you are. We're getting down to causing conditions and things that are killing you. Big Book says resentment is the number one offender, not booze. Because when I have resentments, I'm subtly in the dark. When I'm in the dark, alcoholism takes over. I'm blocked from God. If I'm blocked from God, I drink. That's what I do. It's the number one offender. What's behind resentment is fear. What's behind fear? Me. Self-reliance. My selfishness. Myself. I'm still in charge. I'm not writing a fourth step. There is no perfect fourth step. I can use all the pretty highlighters and the new notepad and the best pen and the flare and all these nice things. It means nothing. It's the content that counts. And whether I have 10 names or 100 names, it's what's in there. And so I had to pray and get quiet. And I followed my sponsor's direction. He write this prayer, uh, get quiet, and then you'll know when to pick up the pen. And like he said, all of a sudden these names start to flow out. At the beginning, I was one of those guys who went through the steps one time and one time only, living 10, 11, and 12. And some cats subscribe to that. I don't. I did. And then I hit the wall after about eight years. See, if we cleaned out this room, we've got a professional cleaning, cleaning crew in here. And they spick and span this place. That when you walk in, oh my God, it looks great. Because it does. But a year from now, it's going to collect dirt. Not terrible, but it's going to start to get collect dirt. And five years goes by, it needs another house cleaning. I'm talking about my soul now. And after about eight years, I was doing all the things I'm supposed to do, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm in my own way. And this gentleman, Mark Houston, uh, began to sponsor me. And he's one of those guys go through the steps at least once a year. And I thought it was blasphemy. <laughs> and then I did it. I had contempt pride investigation. I never, I kind of like, I got shot out of a cannon. I New eyes, new ears. Old belief systems died quickly. And this, this new, I mean, the fifth step is have a new relationship with our creator, a new attitude towards God. It was getting a little stale. It was getting a little monotonous, even taking it for granted. And I was shot out of a cannon with this new light upon me. It was an incredible experience. So I'm one of those guys who've gone through the steps once a year, sometimes twice a year. I've probably been through the steps, I bet you, 30 times over 35 years. I like the effect produced by it. Not married to it, not attached to it. I just like doing it. I hate doing it. <laughs> I like the effects by it. I know it's going to get me through and I'll read it to someone. They'll give me some insight. The last fifth step I did was with my sponsor, Mike Chase, who's not here tonight. And both of them, it's interesting. My sponsor said it one way, Mike, Mike Chase said another, but they were pointed at the same direction. He said, oh, yeah, I didn't see that while I was writing it. And got free. I can breathe. I got air in my lungs again. And so I wrote this master list, as I do now, of names. People I'm angry with. I remember a guy telling me, I'm really not angry with anyone, which meant he was lying. He's alcoholic or angry with somebody. I said, who annoys you? And suddenly he had a list. You know, when that guy or that woman walks in the room, you go, oh, no. Dad, you got a problem. <laughs> Scripture says something like, judge not lest I be judged. And I'm judging a lot. I'm character assassin. I got a problem. That person doesn't even know me. But they walk in the room and I get tight. 
or intimidated. I character sass, I mumble under my breath, I have the problem. And the great thing about step four, albeit it very uncomfortable, for the very first time in my life, I hold a mirror up to me, and I can't peek over and say, only if they didn't do that, I'd be okay. Doesn't allow for that. In fact, the book even acknowledges that there are people, and I'm obviously paraphrasing, there are people who've done bad things to us. They acknowledge that. But I had to disregard what they did entirely, no matter how negligent or gross their behavior was. I have to disregard it entirely and take a look at where I was at fault. Not my part, because that means they had a part in it. We're not doing that. That's for therapy. That's for conversation with the sponsor over a cup of coffee to kind of flush that out. But the book is specific. Where was I at fault? So I'm writing this inventory, and I have the names, and I have the causes, the second column, you know, why I'm angry with Joe or Mary. One sentence, not a, not a whole story. Big book says, resentment, Mr. Brown, the cause is attention to my wife. Next one. Brown was flirting with his wife. So I had mom alcoholic. Mom committed suicide. Things like that, to the point. Because all the mind needs to do is get, it, get hitched into that and start writing it for you. So God's just, what's the poison? What's the poison? What, what's, I do that when I, I sponsor guys now. They go into this long narrative. What is the problem? I don't care about the co-workers. What is the problem? What's eating your lunch today? You know, well, I didn't get promoted when they gave out. Okay, let's talk about that. We don't know where your boss is from and all this stuff. That's the thing. And that's what step four is about. And I'm writing this inventory, and, and one of the names on the list, I've shared this many, many times, uh, one of the names on the list was uh, someone uh, who was uh, behaving inappropriately with me when I was around ages 8 to 10. She should be arrested for what he was doing, and uh, uh, it was an awful time for me. Trapped and uh, someone taking advantage of me and my, my, you know, it was a little tyke. Uh, he was bigger and stronger, and um, I was terrified and threatened me if I told anybody what was going to happen to me. Just if anyone's been there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's awful. And um, I'm writing this image, and I put his name down, and the pen's going through the paper, and the cause, and the pen's going through the paper. Third column got it, and then fourth column comes along. It says, Where am I at fault? And I said, Well, time out. You're telling me at eight years old that I'm being molested, I'm at fault? I mean, that doesn't sound very fair. And I was stuck, and I, I never forget this. Um, I got so welled up with anger that it was mixed with, like, tears at the same time because I was back there again. I should have, would have, could. I should have beat him up. I should have done something and, and started to blame myself and this self-loathing all in a minute. And so I called my sponsor. And he, he was, you know, he loved the mechanics, but he wasn't married to mechanics. He had some, there was flexibility here. It's an outline. And he said, let me ask you a question. How long have you been hating this guy? He's my whole life. In fact, if he turned the corner now, I'd kill him. He just put down that and move on. He didn't, you know, we got to find selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened, or it's incomplete. He didn't do that. He just put down, you hate him, move on to the next one. And that's what I did. I'm free enough to talk about it. I'm not comfortable talking about it, but I'm free enough to share it with you today. There was a time where that wouldn't come out of me if you put me in an electric chair. It's not coming out. Because I look at it as you're going to look at me as less than. I think of an eight-year-old kid that happening, or an eight-year-old boy or girl that happened. It's horrific. It's, it's just awful. 
And there I was. And so I completed this second column, and that was really the foundation that set me up for three or four. In fact, um, a lot of times, my, whatever's going on with me in column four is because of one, two, and three. And what I've come to find out in some instances, that columns one, two, and three were all, all based on my illusions and delusions, not every inventory, but all of them how I saw things rather than how they happened. I, I remember uh, Mark telling us he was sponsoring a guy and the inventory was resentment daddy was never home. He said, what do you mean he was never home? And as he pressed him, well, my dad worked two jobs. That's a different story. My dad worked two jobs and we always had clothes and food on the table and went to a private school. He did a pretty good job. So he had a different, he was a shift for the guy. Yeah? So a lot of times that four column reveals the first three are nothing but my illusions and delusions about life. And that's a great light to look at because we wake up. I'm not holding on to they did this to me. They were trying to do right by me. And then some of them are just the truth, like this man who did what he did to me. My fourth column was spot on. I hate him. My third column is where it gets a little confusing, especially if you're new, and I don't want to lose you here, but just for the sake of respect to the workshop, let me just do column three. The seven areas of self that they talk about are hurt, interfered, or threatened. Think about this for a minute. There's seven areas of my life, usually five pop up, that are hurt, interfered, or threatened by one person saying something or doing something. My whole life is obliterated. I'm such an alcoholic, it looks like this. I walk, I got a great, this is gray. Walk into the meeting and uh, Stephanie says, nice gray jacket. Instead of saying, thank you, I walk away saying, what the hell she mean by that? <laughs> Marion, I look bad in gray. Is it too tight? Is it too big? I should have worn a blue suit. I hate Stephanie. <laughs> this is how I operate. Then I do an inventory, and I says, she did nothing wrong. She said, nice gray suit, and moved on. There's nothing wrong with that. But this alcoholic mind, I don't want to be liked. I need to be worshipped. <laughs> yeah? Did you ever give a talk in an AA meeting about 100 people, and 99 say great talk, and one, one doesn't say hello to you? You go home with that person? <laughs> I did a talk in Minnesota uh, at this big roundup. 7,500, 7,600 people attend this thing. I get the, the, the thank you line was here to Timbuktu. Bless their hearts. I'm in the lobby. People are saying thank you, thank you, thank you. Very gracious folks. I'm headed towards the door to go out with a bunch of friends for a bite to eat. I hear, hey, Pete. The guy does one of these. I should have kept walking. <laughs> and... Uh, he comes up to me, he says, um, I never heard new age AA before. He said, that was an interesting talk. Interesting talk is AA code for you sucked. <laughs> After all of that, you know who I went back to my hotel room with in my head? On the flight from Minneapolis to New Jersey? That guy. I shouldn't have said this, I shouldn't have said that. I'll go back next year and change the entire talk. That's what I do. That's the alcoholic mind. Self-centered poster child for it, yeah? And I think just going to meetings is going to take care of stuff like that. How could I possibly have a transparent heart-to-heart -heart talk with my wife if I'm in that place? 
Because no matter what she says, it's going to hurt. I'm taking it personally rather than just let's talk about this or, or a sponsee or a sponsor or anyone for that matter. I'm living in like barricades around me. Only let in what, what I want to let in and nothing's getting out. And I, I, I have the first part of the third column is pride. That's the mother of all seven deadly sins, by the way. It the, takes the cake here. Pride. I'm God. I put myself in God's place which means you need to worship me. You can't criticize me. You have to go along with everything I say. I know what's best for everyone. And if I'm playing God, what do I need, God? That's the, that's the thing that sneaks in. My personal relationships, how I think this relationship should look, that's hurt into fear or threaten. My self-esteem, how I see or feel about myself. My security is the big one. My emotional security, what I need from you to be okay. I'm demanding you do or say certain things to make me feel okay. I have no right to demand anything from anyone to make me feel comfortable. And yet that's what I do. I manipulate to get them to say and do what I want. I'm kind to get them to do what I want, say they want. I mean to manipulate them. I'm never living in the spirit. I'm never living truth. I'm plotting all the time because pride is God. My ambition, what I want, my sex conduct, I look at that. Big Bird doesn't care how you do it and how often you do it. They stay out of that. But the conduct... Am I taking advantage of someone? If you're an alcoholic, you probably did that. We all have. Subtly or greatly, we've done it. Be the big Casanova, be the guy, the big spender to win her over. She bats her eyes and I'm ready to marry her because she wants to. I mean, there's this whole thing going on. Think of a nightclub on a Saturday night when everyone's drunk. That's me. There's no truth. So we look at the conduct. There was no rigorous honesty. It was all about me all the time in pocketbook, my money. And so my, my third column is asking me, would that person or that institution or that principal that I'm angry with, how did it affect any of those areas? And very often the first five come up. And then rubber hits the road in column four, where was I at fault? Where was I selfish with this? Where was I dishonest with this? Where was I self-seeking with this? And where was I frightened by this? And I just give a little example, and I move into the fear inventory. I make a master list of fears and why I had them. Fear of living, fear of dying. That's what most of it comes. When we boil down the fear inventory, it's fear of living and fear of dying. I'm afraid of success. I'm afraid of failure. I'm afraid of money. I'm afraid of no money. I'm afraid of heights. I'm afraid of everything. I was an eight-year-old kid lost in a mall. I can't find mama in a 30-year-old body. I can't, I'm afraid to make a move. I, sh- I should have said it. I shouldn't have said it. You ever do that? You're in a conversation. Should I talk? Better not talk. I should say something. Then it comes out and you say, I knew I shouldn't have said something. <laughs> and you go home. You toss and turn all night. You made a joke, tried to fit in, didn't go over well. Oh, my God, I'm going to drink. <laughs> I'm trying to operate like this. I can't. I have no God. It's all me against this, this world. So I made a master list of fears. The first time I did them, uh, it was fear about everything. Fear of firemen. I was terribly afraid of firemen. I think I shared that with you once before here. 16 years old, and uh, the firemen would drive up with a false alarm or would put a car fire out. In Brooklyn, lots of people set their cars on fire for reasons. <laughs> to get money was the thing. 
Um, and they'd show up, and you know those firemen show up, they get, they're, most of those are big guys, and they got those Terminator hats and outfits on and the boots, and, and we just watched them, and I'd back up a little bit, and I'd get a little t- I was more afraid of them than the police. What, what, what's the deal with this? What's going on? I'm riding a fourth step. And I realized when I was around three years old, I lived in Red Hook, Brooklyn, and uh, we lived on the second floor, and the building was old. It would vibrate when the cars would roll down the block. And about three or four blocks away was a fire, firehouse, and they'd roll down Van Brunt Street once a night. There was a poster at the same time that was plastered all over the neighborhood of this scruffy-looking fireman on a ladder with a burning building with a baby in his hands. In my three-, four-year-old head, they were going to set my house on fire and take me away from Mama. That's how I interpreted that. I was petrified of them. And every time I would hear the fire trucks with the siren going down Van Brunt Street, I'd be in my bed just petrified and call my mom. And she'd come, what's wrong? The fireman, she'd say, okay. She said, mom's in the next room. Or she'd sit with me till I fell asleep at night. Give me my little bottle and go back to bed. Now I'm 16 years old. I got the same fear going on. So I wrote a force. This is where this is coming from. This is ancient. I get so yeah, I get so used to living in fear, I'm not even aware any longer that I'm living in fear, but I know the effects of it. Something's wrong. I keep meeting the same type of people. I'm always afraid to stand up for myself. I can't tell that person, you can't do this to me. I'm afraid of doing it. Why? It happened way back when, and I'm still walking with it. This isn't just about doing a fourth step, go back to my home group, say I did a fourth step, and I great. This is about uncovering, as Chuck Chamberlain would say, uncovering, discovering, and then getting rid of, discarding the poison that I'm walking around with. It's vital. It's blocking me from God. The only power that's going to keep me sober. The only power that's going to allow me to navigate through life's trials and tribulations and good times. I need this God. I heard Marion say the meeting one time, the longer I'm so, the more I need God. I would hear people say that means I say, oh, that's like nonsense. It couldn't be more true. I really need to lean all the way into God here. So I would write down where was I self-dishonest, self-seeking and frightened. I wrote principles, institutions, and the fear inventory. Why I have this fear. How was I selfishly trying to control and manage this fear? How did I set the ball rolling? What was I doing? I'm in fear, I'm in me. When I don't have fear, I'm in God. That doesn't mean fear is not going to show up. I knew my dad was going to pass. We're waiting for the phone call. I sat with my brothers and said, listen, we're going to get the call. Dad's doesn't, unless something great happened, dad's going to go to sleep. And that's it. Then it happens. There's something that navigates me through that. And you go through what you go through. But I lean all the way into God to keep me above ground, sucking air and sober, head up and shoulders square. And when I call my sponsors, your job right now is to be there for other people. And that's what I try to do. 
And great healing came out of that because of the work we get to do here with the rest of my family who we don't really keep in touch with like we used to. And we were brought together and we realized how much we miss each other. Terribly. There was a whole healing that went on. If I wasn't doing this work, it'd be, you know, we, you sometimes see this uh, at, at events like this. You go to a, a funeral. It's all about that person. They want it to be all about them. I'm crying the loudest. I'm crying the most. It's about them. It wasn't about me. This was about oh, somebody lived their life. God called them home. I need to be there for my wife and my brothers and the rest of my family. I got to see that. If I didn't do fort stuff, I don't know what I'd be. I'd be even be drunk. A long time ago. So I wrote out the fear inventory that I wasn't trusting, relying upon God to care for me and protect me. That's my solution to not only fear, to everything. And I would write that over and over again. I'm not trusting and relying upon God to care for me and protect me. And I did a section which was a bunch of questions in our book. What each relationship that I had. There's a great question in the section inventory. It says, what could we have done better? Then it asked me, uh, um, well, it says, what could we have done better? And the first thing I'm going to write down is uh, uh, not met them. (laughs) (laughs) Walked away. My response is, but you didn't. Looking back on that, what what would you think God would want you to do in that situation? It talks about, you know, uh, who, who we hurt. And the first thing I'd write down is her. And my sponsor says, really, just her? Did she have children? Maybe it was a children. She had parents. Maybe they liked you. They got involved with you, too. Maybe she had girlfriends. Maybe she had friends. Maybe she had brothers. Maybe you affected the entire family with your behavior. But think about that. My amends list just grew like 10 times. But I didn't see that. Why would my alcohol of mine allow me to see other people I've affected by my conduct? And so I wrote out the sex inventory. And again, the book doesn't care how often you did it or how you did it or who you slept with and how often you slept. They don't care. And you look at conduct. Did I put them in danger, me in danger? I take advantage of other people. And it talks about writing out a sane and sound idea for our future sex life. I didn't know what that meant when I first started this. I do now. And I write it every time. A sane and sound ideal for my future sex life. How do I think God would want me to be moving forward? compassionate, understanding, transparent, caring, loving, forgiving, practicing fidelity, honoring, giving some, having, letting, allowing someone to have their independence without having to report to me. And I wrote this down and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed on it. It didn't happen overnight, but I just, little by slowly, I start to see my point of view shifted a little bit. I, I knew how we'd normally react, and I couldn't do that anymore. I start to see clearer. My, my level of discernment increased because I wasn't seeing with my eyes anymore. I was seeing with God's eyes. I wasn't listening with me my ears. I was listening with his ears. What God does is close the ears to the mind and open up the ears to the soul. I was willing to fall under God's authority. I was falling under my sponsor's authority. So I'm writing and writing and writing and writing. 
and I got done with my fourth step. And it wasn't a perfect fourth step. And, and the, 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 when I went back to doing the work again a bunch of years later, uh, I didn't rewrite a fourth step, but stuff had accumulated. It's kind of like when you get a callus on your hand. At first, it's a blister, and it hurts, becomes a callus. You don't pay attention to it. It's there. You're not even aware it's there. Well, resentments and fears get like that. And I can't afford a callus on the soul. I can't afford plaque on the soul because you'll be okay, but I go dark. And for me, that means I get drunk because I'm an alcoholic. The last uh, four and five I did, I'm almost out of time here. Um, I couldn't believe how much I had to write on the whole COVID thing. It wasn't COVID so much. I mean, it was an issue for all of us. But I took a political stance on COVID, meaning I blame the other party for COVID. They invented this, they're prolonging it, how dare they? Plus, my, my, my meeting is closed. My meeting. And I couldn't get a haircut, that was very, very important. And I was on my political horse, looking at the other party, saying, and I'm, 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 it's marinating in a pan. And uh, my sponsor and Mike Chase, bless both their hearts, says, is it possible, which means you're in trouble. <laughs> and I, I, I remember with Michael, I, I went, whoa, Mike, I never saw it that way. He's just think about that for a minute. And he gave me some considerations. And I had to immediately start praying and praying and praying and praying and laying this stuff at God's feet. I thought God wasn't in charge anymore. Incredible stuff comes out of the four and five. And real quick, and the light's going to go off, I have a minute. One of the reasons why I'm back to being a practicing Catholic meaning, I go to church on Sunday. I, I, I do my best to observe the other holidays during the year. I serve at my church. It's become just as important as this, is through steps four and five because I had a piece of inventory about my resentments with my own church. And I wrote out all my causes in my third and fourth column. When I got to step five and I read it to my sponsor, he stopped me and challenged me. Maybe we could talk about that next week, but I had to go back and make amends. And I've been going ever since. We, don't, we write a whole bunch of stuff, and sometimes there's one piece of inventory that unlocks the gates of hell. So I chop wood and carry water. I'm out of time. That's all I got. Peace. Let's give Peter another thank you. We'll have Ryan to be our secretary this evening. Let's give him a hand. Alcoholic secretary. Hey. Uh, in keeping with the seventh tradition, which states that every group shall be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, the baskets are now going around. Uh, we also have QR codes on the back of the chairs if you want to uh, give that way. And I've asked Carol to read the recovered statement. We read this notice to explain why many people in AA identify as recovered rather than recovering and what exactly it means to be a recovered alcoholic.
Carol, raving recovering alcoholic. Carol. Uh, recovered. We are not cured of alcoholism. Recovered, but not cured. That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime. But we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. We are now saying where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. All right. Uh, thanks, Carol. 1940s-style big book sponsorship from the forward to the second edition of Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, 50% got sober at once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses. And among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe, and experience is that God has not changed over time, and neither should the sacred approach back into his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75-plus percent success rate. Uh, does anybody need a sponsor, if you can raise your hand? All right. If you're too shy to raise your hand, you can just come up here after the meeting, and someone will come talk to you. Can, alcohol can recovered alcoholics raise your hands? Awesome. So these are the people you want to talk to. Um, we have some announcements. Uh, Broward County Intergroup, there's hours up there, uh, phone numbers, websites, way to get in touch. Uh, you can get uh, literature. Um, Broward County Institutions Committee, is anybody here from BCIC? Awesome. So we have a hand up back here. If anybody wants to get more information on that, you can go to see Brian after the meeting. Uh, volunteer opportunities, the next uh, gratitude dinner planning meeting will be on Saturday, August 19th at 1.30. That's this Saturday. Any more? Stay with your chest, babe. Uh, you can subscribe to Grapevine and get some awesome jokes. Uh, get Peter for, that this was his fourth session. What? Alright, that's it. Oh, uh, this one, Monday nights, we have our big book study on the third floor of this building, same time, 7.15, so uh, definitely come check that out. We're reading We Agnostics right now. It's pretty good. All right, uh, we have CDs, mugs, large print big books, little red books, and big book dictionaries for sale on the table in the back. If you're interested in buying any of those, just see any home group member. We meet every Thursday starting promptly at 7.15, and we ask that you be courteous and ready to begin at the sound of the bells. Thank you, and see you next week. Okie doke. Thank you so much, Ryan. Um, so with this session included, um, we have all past speaker podcasts online for free at alcoholicsandgod.org. Again, I'd like to invite everyone to our Monday night big book study. We are in We Agnostics. It's one of my favorite chapters. <laughs> Those who wish to thank tonight's speaker, please line up down the center aisle. If we could uh, close this meeting with the Lord's Prayer seated, it'll be up to the left. And right. Uh, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, 
Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go.
just about to start. God bless. I love you, Mike Chase. Bye.
Yeah.